in that um, in that hurt, behold him. Like I that that song just really said that well. So if you have a chance, watch it a little bit later and listen to those lyrics again because it is a beautiful one. So we're going to start the morning off with um, the song 10,000 Reasons. If you want to stand, we're going to start this one. But the the reason I picked this one to start with is the it kind of sets the pace for the new year. You know, this is our first Sunday here back in, we're at 2021. The first verse, the sun comes up, it's a new day dawning. So as we sing that, you know, it's kind of like an intentional, this is what we're setting our, our year as, it's intentional. So sing with us this morning.
You may be seated. Good morning. Good to be here with you this morning on this first Sunday of the new year. For those of you who may not know me, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. And we're glad that you are joining us, whether you're here in person or you're here online. We're glad to kind of worship together with you. Um, so I just want to say thank you for those of you through the craziness of 2020 who continue to faithfully give to our church financially. Um, we're really thankful for the way we came through that. Um, and if you want to continue to give like on your way out, there are plates on your left on the way out. You can place a donation in those plates or you can give online and go to our website and find information there about how to give. Like If you're visiting, you're not a regular attender here, please know that we're not asking for your donation. We want this service to be a gift to you. But for those of you who are regular attenders and you want to give to what we're doing here, those are the ways you can do that. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who who is worthy of worship, who, as we just saying, that there are 10,000 reasons and even more to praise your name. That the reasons and the ways to praise you are never ending. And you are a good God. And as we start this new calendar year, a chance to look forward and to anticipate all the good you will accomplish in each of our lives this year, in the life of the church this year, and ultimately in the overall scope of your plan for us this year, that you will continue to work out your good purposes even when there are hard times, even when there are trials, that you will continue to work out your good purposes in the lives of those who love you and trust you. God, I pray that as we, we enter this time of worship, as we sing to you our heart to be transfixed by what a great and awesome God you are, I pray that you would be honored, that you would be glorified that all, by all that takes place here this morning. God, we, we pray for those in our church family who are who are dealing with different physical ailments that you would bring comfort, you bring healing, you would bring um, peace where it is needed, you would be at work in the lives of those who need you. And we pray especially for the church around the world as well as they gather that you would be at work to do mighty things in places around the world where the freedom to worship you like this is not as available, that you would still see your kingdom and your glory advance. God, we know that you are able. We praise you for that. God, will your name be magnified here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to continue worshiping this morning. If you could stand. Um, this next song is, Oh, Praise the Name. The very first line of it says, I cast my mind. 
I think like at the start of the new year, you know, we have this chance to kind of recalibrate to we kind of box things off into years and say, we're going to do this better. We're going to do that better. And earlier this week, I, um, Ann Eppler and I, we went on a, it was called a first day hike on the first day of the year. And it's something like the state park associations do to encourage people to get outside and like set the pace for the year. And I like that idea of like, we're going to get outside. We're going to set the pace. We're going to set this idea. And I think that's what we're doing here today too. We're setting our intentions for the year and this song I cast my mind it's intentional it isn't something that we just fall into we are intentionally saying we're going to cast our mind this direction what a great thing to do for the new year you know to say this is intentional I am casting my mind toward Calvary so sing with me this morning Drenched in tears They laid him down 
an, another one that just kind of is the um, what's the word I want? It's it's just the the very platform of what we believe in. Jesus Messiah, He became sin who knew no sin. This is just like the very basics, the very basics of our faith.
praise you that it is finished. Your wounds have paid our ransom. There's nothing we can do to add to what you've done for us on the cross. That all the work that needed to be done to save us from our sins is done and it is finished. That you came to do that for us as this great expression of the Father's deep, deep love for us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I hope you had a good Christmas and a good start to your year. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there, if you have a Bible, you can do that. Otherwise, the verses will be on the screen as well. And while you turn there, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a kind of roadmap to what lies ahead for us in terms of sermons. So this is, this is now the tenth sermon in the book of Luke. Right? And eventually we want to go through the, the whole book. Right? But my plan is to kind of take breaks along the way so we don't get too terribly sick of hearing from the same author week after week. And so like this sermon... In Luke 2, it's like the last sermon that covered Jesus' kind of infancy and childhood. And then there's going to be a, basically an 18-year gap between the end of Luke 2 and the start of Luke 3. And so that just seems like a natural place to kind of take a break in our sermon series as well. So for the next few weeks after this one, we'll take a break from Luke and want to look at something else, which is that Several times in Luke, Jesus says something about how like, that which is written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms are about him. Right? So in Luke 24, we'll read this verse later in the sermon, but he says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And a lot of times I read statements like that, and I think, okay, yeah, sure, like, stuff in the Old Testament was about Jesus, great, but I don't really grasp all that that really means. Like, what does it really mean for things in the Old Testament to be about Jesus? And so I want to spend, after today, the next month or so, looking at some of the Old Testament stories that are probably familiar to us, but ask the question, like, how is this ultimately about Jesus? And so that when we get to the point in Luke where Jesus makes statements about how everything in the Old Testament is about him, we'll have a better grasp of what he means. So next week we'll kind of go back to almost the very beginning. We'll look at the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And we'll try to see how even there we see hints of what Jesus would do when he came. So when I was growing up, I played, I played Little League Baseball. Well, technically, I played Babe Ruth League Baseball. Like, all the cool kids in the big city of Appleton played Little League Baseball. 
us country kids on the outskirts who played Babe Ruth League baseball. Right? And so, like, one time when I was 11 years old, we had a really good team. Like, we had a couple of brothers who were just out of their minds, great. And so, like, we ended up winning our local league. At the end of the year, we had a banquet, we got a trophy. Like, it was all very gratifying. And, like, in my mind, like, that was the peak achievement for an 11-year-old baseball player. Like, I was at the pinnacle, I was at the highest of highs. I had won my local league. So imagine my surprise a couple years later when I discovered there was this thing called the Little League World Series. And, like, all the best teams of 10 to 12-year-olds from around the world like, converge on South Williamport, Pennsylvania to be crowned the best Little League team in the world. Like, suddenly, like, my puny little trophy from one of my local league didn't seem quite so impressive. And now, as an adult, I enjoy watching the Little League World Series. On the one hand, like, watching kids throw harder and hit farther and feel better than I can even as a full-grown adult, adult it's, a, it's a little disheartening. Right? But I also love watching these kids play, because right? they, they play with a rawness of emotion. They wear their heart on their sleeves in a way you don't see in professional sports. I also find it fascinating to watch because... Like, every once in a while, just one kid will jump off the page, or off the screen. Right? Like, even in this pool of the best of the best youth baseball players in the world, one kid clearly stands out above the rest. And you can't help but wonder, like, am I going to be watching the kid, like, play in the major leagues in 10, 12 years? And if you watch the Little League World Series, they love to show pictures of former Little Leaguers playing in the major leagues. Right? To date, 50 players have played in the Little League World Series and gone, to play, gone on to play in the major leagues. And they love to show old videos and pictures of these major leaguers as Little Leaguers playing in the Little League World Series. Right? Cause there's, just, there's something fascinating about getting a peek into the childhood of someone who is destined for greatness. That's what we get in this passage in Luke. This passage gives us really the only peek in the whole Bible of what Jesus was like as a kid. We get the birth narratives. The Magi come when Jesus is maybe two, but we don't really see Jesus do anything in there. And then we get nothing except for this passage until Jesus is 30 years old. And so let's jump and let's read this passage together, starting in verse 41 of Luke chapter 2. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And so, like in Jewish culture, when you turn 13, you get treated as kind of a full-blown member of the community. And so the year when you're 12, it's a kind of year of intense preparation for that. And so you would do things like attend holy festivals with your family. That's what's going on here. Jesus is going with his parents up to Jerusalem. And when the feast ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. And like, if you're like me, 
if you're reading that, like, you just want to stop right there and be like, I have some questions. Like, how do you, how do you leave your kid behind in the big city of Jerusalem? Like, especially when that kid's the Messiah. Like, don't you think you want to keep track of that kid a little bit? But like, we should know, like, Luke doesn't seem to care to tell us why this happened. He just kind of moves on. But a couple of things we can, we can say. Like, roads back then were often dangerous. There were robbers and thieves along the roads. And so communities and families would often travel to these festivals in, in large caravans. And in these caravans, often the women and the children would walk in the front and men would walk in the back of the caravan. But as he said, like, 12-year-old boys were kind of in this weird in-between state. They were right on the cusp of becoming men. So they kind of had freedom. Like, some would walk in the front with the women and maybe their friends, and some would walk in the back with the men. I have a friend back in the Twin Cities. With the, he's a youth pastor. And his church serves kids from several different school districts. And this causes a bit of a problem because some of the schools they serve start middle school in 6th grade, and some of the schools they serve start middle school in 7th grade, which causes tension in the church about, like, when does the kid transition from doing children's ministries in the church to doing youth ministries in the church? And nowadays they have a hard and fast policy, but for a while, the policy was just, like, let the parents choose. If you want your sixth grader to do elementary school stuff, you can do that. If you want your sixth grader to do middle school and youth group stuff, they could do that. And that's kind of what's going on here. Right? There's no hard and fast rule for where 12-year-old boys should walk in these caravans. And so Mary probably thinks, like, Jesus is in back with Joseph. Joseph probably thinks he's up front with Mary or his friends or with some relatives. Anyway, they just assume that he's along somewhere. Again, remember, like, this is Jesus. Like, he never sinned. And so, like, by the time you're 12 years old, you've built something of a reputation. Like, Jesus' reputation probably has a very trustworthy, responsible 12-year-old. Like, his parents probably didn't worry too much about where he was. They just trusted he would be along. But they were wrong. And so Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents were unaware of it. And so we pick up in verse 44. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So I have, on a few occasions, misplaced my keys. Like, we have this place in our house, like a hook by the door, where we, like, this is where we keep our keys. But I have a really bad habit of just leaving my keys in my pocket. And so when I need my keys, I often I go to that dedicated place, and like nine times out of ten, they're not there. And so then I start going through a list of, like, the most likely places I left my keys. And so I check my jeans pockets. If they're not there, like, I'll go and check my jacket pocket. And if they're not there, I'll go check... My other pants are laying on the bedroom floor because I never put them away. Again, if they're not there, I'll go check like that weird kangaroo pouch pocket in my sweatshirt. And like, I'll just keep going down. And, like, but every time they're not somewhere, there's this 
growing sense of dread. Like, every time I check something, they're not there. Like, where do those keys go? There's this growing sense of, oh no. And I imagine, like, that must be what Mary and Joseph are going through here. Right? They come together at the end of the day, and like Mary says to Joseph, have you seen Jesus? And Joseph says, no, haven't you? No. So then like, they start going through the list of like most likely places he would be. Right? So they go ask uncle so-and-so, and he says, I haven't seen him. So they go ask Jesus' friend so-and-so, and he says, I haven't seen him. And like, they start going down the list of people where Jesus might be. And like every time they go to somebody who's not there, there's this growing sense of dread until they realize like, he's not in the caravan. Like, and they have to go back to Jerusalem to look for him. So picking up in verse 46, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So these words are the very first words chronologically that we have recorded of Jesus speaking in his life. I'm going to come back to them in a minute because I think they're really the key to the whole passage. But let's first finish reading. Verse 50, And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So like as I said, I think really the key to understanding like what's going on in this passage, is to really understand what Jesus meant when he said to his parents that I must be in my Father's house. In fact, I think really the only, the whole reason that, Jesus, that Luke records this passage, he tells us this story, is so we can hear Jesus say those words. Because those words are really important. Because those words show us that from a young age, Jesus was aware of his mission and his identity. Even as a 12-year-old, Jesus understood who he was and what he had come to do. So let's go back and focus in again on verse 49. So again, Jesus says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my Father's house? And we can zoom in even further. And the key statement is, like, I must be in my Father's house. Right? That's the key to understand this whole passage, is understanding that statement. And if we divide that statement in half, it kind of tells us two things about Jesus. And so first we can look at the first part of that statement, where Jesus says, I must be. So seven times, Jesus, in the book of Luke, uses that expression, I must be. Or he refers to himself in the third person and says, the Son of Man must be something. And every time he uses that expression, 
he's saying something central, something key to why he came and what he must do to fulfill his mission here on earth. Right, so some, some examples. And so in Luke 4.43, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. In Luke 9.22, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. And really, we could just stop after those two verses. Right? Like, what did Jesus come to do? He came to preach the gospel and then to be rejected and killed and raised on the third day. A few more examples. Luke 13, 33. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And Luke 17, Jesus says, But first he, that the Son of Man, must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Two other times, Jesus talked about how he needs to do something so that the Scripture, because the Scripture must be fulfilled. So in Luke 22, we read, For I tell you that, I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And in Luke 24, the verse we read earlier, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So every time Jesus uses that word must, he's saying something central to his mission. And so when Jesus said, I must be in my Father's house, he doesn't use that word by accident. And it shows that even as a 12-year-old, he knew that he had a mission from God. And he knew that his, his mission ultimately was to save sinners. In Luke 19, Jesus states this mission plainly when he says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That was his mission. It was not to come and seek and save those who try hard. Not to save those who are seeking after him. He came to seek those who are totally, fully, hopelessly lost. That's you, that's me. Before Jesus came and found us, and saved us, like we were utterly hopeless. Our sin had separated us from God and left us without any hope of our relationship with Him being restored. We deserve to spend eternity in hell as punishment for our rebellion against God. But God sent Jesus on this rescue mission to seek us and to find us and to save us from that fate. Like all the things that Jesus says he must do, right? from, being in the, from being in the temple as a 12-year-old to being rejected and killed and raised, right? they're all part of his fulfilling that mission. 12-year-old Jesus knew he had a mission from God. 
And he knew that being in God's house, the temple, was part of fulfilling that mission. And the reason Jesus knew what his mission was is that he knew, first and foremost, like what his identity was. Who Jesus is, like his identity, is why he did what he did, not the other way around. Like our identity, who we are at our deepest level, drives what we do. So, like one in three college students will change their major while in college. Many of them will change their major multiple times, which might raise the question: like, why is changing majors so common? And I think the answer is because, like, usually, like, like 18-year-olds don't know who they are. Like, they don't know what their identity is. In fact, like, part of the, part of the college experience is learning who you are and what matters to you. So to ask an 18-year-old to choose a major probably isn't the fairest thing in the world. Like, I, on the other hand, never changed my major. I just said, did a far more expensive and time-consuming thing. Like, I plowed through, finished my first degree, barely used it, and then went and got a second degree, which was not a great choice either. But here we are. But here's the point. Right? Like before you can figure out what you want to do for a career, you have to figure out what is most important to you, what your identity is. Like many 18-year-olds don't have a firm enough grasp on their identity to settle on one major. Which makes Jesus' awareness of his identity as a 12-year-old all the more impressive. And so again, in verse 49, he says, I must be in my Father's house. Now, for those of us who have been in the church for a long time, like, calling God my Father is not particularly noteworthy. But for a Jew to do it in Jesus' day was unheard of. There's a few examples in the Old Testament of the author calling God our Father, speaking for the whole nation of Israel. But nowhere in the Old Testament does someone refer to God as my personal Father. It's not something that Jews did. And so by doing this, by calling God my Father, like Jesus shows that he's aware of his identity as the Son of God. And Jesus was aware of his identity as God's Son, even as a 12-year-old. And so Jesus, as a boy, like knew who he was and what he was to do. But if we're not careful, like we can... You can take the fact that Jesus knew these things about himself and it can cause us to draw some false conclusions about the boy, Jesus. So I want to consider three, kind of, three things that Jesus' identity and his mission don't mean. And the first of those is that like, Jesus' mission and identity like, doesn't mean that parenting him was easy. There are times I think about what it must have been like to be Mary and Joseph. Like, oh, you're raising a sinless kid. Like, that sounds pretty awesome. Like, that must be great. But here in this passage, like, 
We get our first little taste of something Simeon prophesied when Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple to dedicate him. Ian talked about this last week a little bit. When they bring him to the temple, Simeon prophesies to Mary and he says, This child is destined to cause the rising and falling of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And, speaking to Mary, a sword will pierce your soul too. And the idea here is that being Jesus' mother is going to cause Mary great pain. And increasingly, as Jesus gets older, Jesus being obedient to his heavenly Father is going to cause pain for Mary. Throughout his ministry, we see signs that Mary doesn't quite grasp what Jesus' ministry is all about. At one point, she even tries to go collect him because she thinks he's out of his mind. And of course, at the end of his life, she experiences what must be like the worst pain any parent can go through as she like, watches her son die this terrible, excruciating death on the cross. And the root of this pain, the root of the pain that Mary is going to experience comes from the fact that like, there's a tension between God's call on Jesus' life and what Mary wants for her son. And the same thing is true for us. There may be times when God calls us to do things that come into conflict with what people who genuinely love us think is best for us. We have some friends who are missionaries overseas. And I remember them talking about how they had these long conversations with one of their sets of parents. The parents didn't like the idea of our friends going overseas and taking their grandkids overseas with them. And so they wonder, like, why? Like, the parents don't want to see their child, like, move an ocean away. And it hurt them to see them go. But our friends went because they were convinced that it was what God had called them to do. Or Jesus tells us that there's two great commands, right? Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And usually those two things coexist pretty peacefully. Loving others well is often the same thing, or goes hand in hand with loving God well. But there are occasions when those two things come into conflict. And when they do, then the order of the commandments matters. And the order is love God first and love others second. Like our missionary friends would have been showing love to their parents if they had decided to not go overseas. Jesus would have been showing love to Mary by making sure he got back in that caravan back to Nazareth. But in both cases, to show love to others would have meant not showing love to God. And showing love to God must always come first. So, like, the point is, like, don't let the opinions of other people, like, stand in the way of your being obedient to God. Following God won't always be popular. It won't always be easy. It may be mocked. It may hurt feelings along the way. But if God has truly called you to do something, 
do it. The second thing that Jesus' mission identity don't mean, that they don't mean that he didn't submit to authority. I find find verse 51 to be just absolutely fascinating. So right after Jesus reveals that he's God's son, Luke tells us in verse 51 that he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. The sinless God of the universe submitted to and was obedient to sinful, flawed parents. Because the God has established certain relationships for where one person has authority over another. And the call to submit to that authority is not dependent on the person, on the person in position of authority being morally superior to the one who's called to submit. Like, obviously, Jesus was morally superior to his parents. He didn't sin. They did. But he still submitted to them. And look, of course, that this has its limits. Like, if Jesus' parents had told him to do something sinful, he wouldn't have done it. But whenever they, as his parents, told him to do something that wasn't, that wasn't sinful, he submitted like, we've all been in situations, right? Where, like, someone who has authority over us has asked us or told us to do something we think is dumb. Like, when I was teaching, this happened all the time. principal would tell us to do something that I just thought was a waste of time, pure foolishness. And we've probably also been in situations where, like, someone who has authority over us, we think we're holier than, we think we're morally superior to, and maybe we're even right. So maybe it was a boss, maybe it's the government, maybe it's even like a, a pastor or a church leader. Like, those are all people who God has delegated authority to in one way or another. And like, but that authority is not negated by moral inferiority. Like, as long as they aren't commanding you to do something sinful, like we're called to submit, and Jesus models that for us here. Because the sinless God of the universe submitted to his sinful parents. Like surely we ought to submit to those who are put in a position of authority over us by God. And finally, Jesus' mission and identity like, don't mean that he didn't have room for growth. We, like, we take that for granted when it comes to his like, physical body because that's kind of undeniable. Like, he's born as a baby, and he grows into a full-blown man. But he grew, grew in other ways as well. In verse 52, Luke says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is, like, so important. I think, for me, at least, like, when I think about what it means for Jesus to be God and man, often what I really think, kind of my default way of thinking, is that he's got the mind of God in a human body. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Like Jesus increased in wisdom. He had to learn things. He couldn't do differential calculus as a six-year-old. Like if that even is what that thing is called. I made that up. Right? 
Like Jesus had, like, he had a fully human mind. Like, he needed to learn things, just like we do. Like, granted, his mind was untainted by sin, so he didn't get lazy, like, he didn't wander off into sinful, unproductive thoughts, so he was able to learn efficiently, but he still had to learn. Like, he had to grow in wisdom. He had to grow in stature and in favor with God and man. And if it's true for Jesus, like, then certainly that should be true for us as well. And so, like, we walk into this new year, it's a popular time to kind of think about the year ahead, to set goals. Like, I'm not a particularly big fan of resolutions. Like, one recent poll showed that 70% of Americans will abandon resolutions by February 1st. Right? And so, like, there's some of you probably ever, like, January 3rd today, some of you have probably already, already abandoned yours. Right? Like, and so, like, I'm not a huge fan of resolutions. But it is still, I think, a good time to think about life and areas you want to improve. And as we do that, I think like, this verse gives us a helpful outline for categories to think about. But Jesus, we're told, increased in wisdom. And so, like, like, what does that look like for us? Like, what do we want to learn this year? Like, what do you want to gain? How do you want to gain in knowledge and understanding? Like, Jesus increased in stature. Like, for you, like, what do you want your physical health to look like this year? Jesus grew in favor with God. And so, like, how do you want your relationship with God to improve this year? Do you want to read the Bible more? Do you want to pray more? Like, is there a certain sin area in your life that you need to submit to God? And Jesus grew in favor with man. And so, like, what do you want to do this year to be a better spouse or parent or neighbor or employee or employer or friend? And for me, like, I find it helpful to kind of pick one overarching theme for the year and then kind of filter everything through that theme. And so, for me, like, I'm calling this year, for me, the year of communication, like I want to I wanna grow in wisdom by intentionally learning how to communicate better. I want to improve, grow physically by communicating with myself about what I'm eating in the form of calorie tracking. I want to grow in favor with God by communicating with Him more in prayer. I want to grow in favor with man by like communicating better. Like I want to communicate better with you as your pastor, both in terms of, like, I'm going to be a better preacher, but also to do a better job communicating about the, the life of the church and doing more to connect with people on personal levels. So I also want to, like, grow in favor with man by, like, being more intentional about communicating with my wife and my kids and my extended family and my friends. And so, like, I just, it's easy for me to get bottled up in my own thoughts and not communicate well. So I want to grow in that area this year. So, like, this idea of, like, a theme works for me, right? but not necessarily, like, a magic bullet. Like, I'm not saying everyone should go do this. Right? And I know I'm also, like, a couple days late to, like, prompting you to think about 2021 goals. Many of you probably already done this. But I also know, like, there's nothing magical about 
like the start of a new year. Like it's an arbitrary date picked. Right? And so like there's no reason you have to do these things at the beginning of a year. Right? But, but the way our brain works, it kind of seems to work to do it at the beginning of a year. So I'd encourage you, right, if you head into this year, think about what it looks like for you to grow in wisdom, to grow in physical health, and to grow in favor with God and man. Like if Jesus grew in those areas, like surely we all have room to grow as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for this peek into the life of boy Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you came, that you emptied yourself, that you laid aside all your right as God to come a little baby who needed to grow physically, who needed to learn things, who needed to build his reputation. You did not you did not demand your rights as God, but you came to earth as a human so that we could so that you could live perfect life. You could die on the cross on our behalf that your real, physical, human body that's tortured and died on that cross, that your real, physical, human mind was tempted in every way that we are. You did not sin. We praise you that you came, Jesus. We pray that you died for us. We praise you for even the ability that we look into this coming year and think about ways we want to improve and grow. We thank you for the ability to do these things. We thank you for the, for the new heart and the new desires that are ours as believers in you. We thank you for the physical capabilities we have. We thank you for the mental capabilities we have. But not take those things for granted. They are a gift from you. As we go from here, would you be honored? Would you be glorified? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we go from here, my prayer, my hope is that you would go with a desire to grow in wisdom in stature and in favor with God and man. You're dismissed.